Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. On the show today, Shannon talks to Scott Galloway. And since Shannon happens to be sitting right next to me, I'm just going to ask her, Shannon, who is Scott? So Scott teaches marketing at NYU, and he also runs a business intelligence firm. But the reason I wanted to talk to him is that he's he's one of these guys who has a lot of opinions about everything, but um, particularly about, about advertising, about marketing, about retail, a lot of these trends that like we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about. We had a great conversation. We talked about the death of the advertising industrial complex, how advertising has become a tax on the poor and the technologically illiterate. Of course, we talked a lot about Amazon. We talked about sort of Amazon's creeping dominance in all kinds of areas and what could be done to stop them. Our conversation was before this week's announcement that Disney is going to be pulling its films from Netflix, but we talked a bit about Netflix and subscription models and media. Um, So if anyone's kind of been following the, the stories that have been going on in TV, I think there's You'll be interested to hear what, what Scott has to think about it. All such relevant stuff to how we actually live our lives, too. In other words, the subject matter has obvious relevance for the business world and for the U.S. economy, but it also seems quite close to the ground. Yeah, I mean, because so much of this is about, right, it's, I mean, we're, we're experiencing it every day. Like, how, how do you shop, right? How do you get your information? How are you buying things? How are you watching television and movies? Like, it's, this is like the, what I love most about this part of my beat is it's kind of where the business stories that are happening actually intersect with, like, people's everyday lives and, and look what we choose to spend our money on and how we're choosing to spend it. So it's a lot All of right. fun. Uh, let's hear it. Here is Shannon talking to Scott Galloway. Enjoy it. Hi, Scott. It's nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So uh, you teach brand strategy and digital marketing at NYU at Mm -hmm. the School of Business there. Um, And you're also the founder of L2, a business intelligence firm that, as I understand it, helps companies figure out the Internet. (laughs) Have I explained that succinctly? Yeah, pretty much. Actually, better than we do. It's it's an accidental business. uh, Started at NYU. I don't know how much you know about academia, but you can't get very far without doing research. Right. And so I thought I'd go to what I know. I've started a couple of e-commerce companies and architected an algorithm of 1,250 data points across site, digital marketing, mobile, and social, and then applied those data points to the 2,500 largest brands and retailers in the world. And then we sit down with them and we tell them where they're strong and weak relative to their competitive set and help them shape their digital roadmap over the next couple of years. What are the biggest things right now that brands are getting wrong about the digital world, about the Internet? Sure. So... I'm not sure. I think they get beat up on sort of unfairly. Retailers are seen as incompetent because it's such a difficult environment. But there's this perfect storm of bad things for retailers right now. Stagnating middle-class wages, uh, changing consumer preferences, essentially 
your generation of millennials want to drink coffee, have experiences, and not buy stuff. Right. And then you have Amazon. And then in apparel, there's this double whammy of fast fashion also kind of beating them up. Right. So the cycle is, is happening so quickly that they, if you're a, a traditional retailer, you can't really keep up. Well, remember that crazy nor'easter, perfect, literally it was called the perfect storm mm-hmm. that was thir- three hurricanes coming together? That's kind of what we have now. I would call this the reckoning as, as it relates to retail. So retail isn't going away. People like to think, oh, it's totally being reshaped and everybody's going out of business. But it is the most difficult environment I've seen since since the recession. You know, retailers need to, I think, uh, obviously capital allocation, very boring things around rationalizing their store base. Probably the thing that retail is missing most is there's a direct correlation between supply chain agility and year-on-year revenue growth mm-hmm. of anything we track. Now, what does that mean? If you look at fast fashion, they can get something from concept to shelf in weeks. And now there are Chinese manufacturers who are tracking that data and getting stuff up on Amazon within days. So your ability to get stuff from idea to shelf, which a lot of retailers and brands aren't very good at, is your agility. And there's a direct correlation between who's thriving, who isn't, and supply chain agility. So right. it's kind of the boring stuff. It's it's the crazy pocket pen protect revenge of the nerds operation stuff that's creating shareholder value. What are brands getting wrong? I think that we're effectively entering an era where I affectionately call the death of the advertising industrial complex. I think advertising has become a tax that the poor and the digitally illiterate pay, that if you're wealthy, you get to opt out of advertising, and brands are still too dependent upon it. Because so, how are we able to do that? Like, how are wealthier people able to do that? So, right. I, I mean, I love Modern right. Family. I can download it from ABC.com just as well as iTunes. But right. iTunes is two ninety nine. So, why would I do that? Because I get twenty one minutes instead of thirty, and right. I avoid the nine minutes of advertising. Right. And just as we become numb to mass shootings in the U.S., we become numb to just how badly advertising sucks. Yeah. And consumers ultimately win. And most of us would rather not have advertising in our lives. So, if you have children. And when they're born, you have this purist viewpoint of, oh, we're not going to let them watch television because no screens. And then you realize, well, we want to spend some time on our screens, so you stick them in front of the TV. So a decent sort of trade-off is to say, all right, if we just have them watch Netflix, they save 11 days a year in advertising. Mm -hmm. So anyone with any money, anyone who understands technology is downloading an ad blocker. If you go to Paris, you can't see an advertisement within eyeshot of a park because they have very strong regulations now. If you go to a poor country that's not doing well, you see ads littered everywhere across the side of the highway. Advertising has become a tax. The poor and the technologically illiterate pay. And brands that are still dependent upon broadcast advertising are finding that, and this is a reference you're going to love, the valerium steel of advertising is getting duller and duller every day. So you see a reallocation out of capital into supply chain, product innovation, and even into retail. Mm -hmm. If we took a poll today, who would people say is the most innovative company the last 20 years? Maybe Apple. Correct. Google. I think it's Apple. And people would say, okay, why? What's the most innovative thing? So this iPhone. is a podcast I'm interviewing. The iPhone, right. <laughs> of and I think they'd be wrong. I think the iPhone is a great phone, but the Samsung Galaxy is just as good. The most innovative thing that Apple did in terms of strange or breakthrough thinking that probably created more shareholder value than any decision in modern business history was their crazy, irrational decision to forward integrate into stores. Right. Can you imagine the person who came into Steve Jobs' office and said, I know Let's open stores. Because right. this is at a time where Microsoft had just failed with their Zune stores. Gateway Computer had failed with their stores. And they've opened 500 temples to the brand. The most successful retailer in history has taken this brand and really put it over the top, whereas Samsung spends double or treble the amount on advertising on a percentage of gross revenue than Apple. And Apple has reallocated that to stores, and Apple's decision was the smarter one. And even if Samsung has a better phone, which they may, 
they're not going to catch up to Apple in terms of brand because the first interaction, the first physical, I think, I think of it in terms of everything in biology, the first physical encounter you have in this relationship with the brand is at the store where you consummate the relationship in the form of a purchase. Right. And when you consummate the relationship with Samsung, it's with a guy named Roy and bad lighting in a Verizon store with right. bad carpeting that looks like it could be literally packed up the next day. When you're in an Apple store, it's like that first kiss with Tom Brady or Gisele. You think, oh, I will put up with their in-laws. Their quirks become cute. Apple has created an environment where everybody wants to maintain a relationship with them. So the, is the physical future of retail, I mean, it's not, it's not that retail stores themselves go away, but they, it looks very, very different. I mean, can other people sort of recreate what Apple has done in the physical world? Sure. So what do retailers need to do? I think they need to, uh, well, let me back up. It's not going away. It's going to be rationalized. We're probably going to have 10 to maybe 30% fewer square footage or mm-hmm. square feet per capita. We already have triple what London has right, or Ingles has, right. 50% more than Canada. This was just coming for a long time. There's just too, we're overstored. It was just a the cheap capital. It was an inter- a decent way to scale. More malls. Malls grew twice as fast as population growth from 1970 to 2015. So just, just statistically, economically, we were just setting ourselves up for a fall in right. terms of malls. Now, there are some companies thriving. Sephora's opening stores. Starbucks is opening stores. Carter's, the kids' brand, mm-hmm. is opening stores. So the four-wall unit economics of a store, when they work, it's a great, fairly easy way to scale. Uh, so they're not going away. They're just, there's just going to be fewer of them. And there are some copying Apple. When I say copying Apple, doing a great job. I think Sephora has a fantastic retail footprint. I think Ulta does a great job. I mean, there's several apparel retailers that I think actually do a a decent job. But one, it's investing in human capital. So while Bezos is trying to take people away with artificial intelligence, I would argue that the smart thing to do for your retailer is to zag and invest in organic intelligence, whether it's Home Depot with their golden aprons, Best Buy with their blue shirts, or Sephora with their cast. People no longer go to stores for product. They go for people. They want help getting something fast and get me out of the store immediately. They want expertise, what bronzer looks best on a... Well, again, sort of a way that Apple has changed it, right? The idea that like, you, you don't have, right, you have the genius bar and you don't yeah. have the line for the register. You just have the person wandering around who can take my, my payment right there. That's right. So if I want a $1,200 computer and I know what I want, I want out as quickly as possible. and I don't want to wait a day or two days. The most efficient, cost-effective form of fulfillment for the consumer and the retailer respectively, is a store. Mm -hmm. Their fantastic warehouse is located in the most convenient areas in the world. And they also have really nice, attractive people staffing them. So the companies that have used or thought of their stores as warehouses, as fulfillment centers, have click and collect, curbside pickup, are winning. A lot of the, you know, what's old is new again, a great sense of voice. I'm always going to want to go into Williams-Sonoma or West Elm. I just think they do a great job and speak to me or whatever my demographic or psychographic is. So stores continue to play a huge part in the economy, there's just going to be fewer of them. So when when Amazon comes in, so now we, we see, you know, they're going to buy Whole Foods, as you predicted, as they're, you know, they, they that are... That was lucky, wasn't it? They're now, exactly. This is your year. Let's talk about saying. that more, about what a genius I am. <laughs> Seven days before it went down, they had never made a billion dollar plus acquisition, 13 billion, and I said on another podcast that they were going to buy Whole Foods. Anyways, Pressure. enough about you, me. You and, Thank you, you, and, you and Jeff sharing a brain. Yeah, but right. so, you know, so so when when that happened, right, I mean, everyone was scrambling to explain, like, what, what were they doing? What's happened here? And so there's the yeah. one argument, right, that there's it's a great brand. It's, yeah. you know, they can t- they can do a lot in terms of rationalizing costs and yeah. helping them grow their, their in-store brands and all that. And there's a whole other line of argument saying they've just acquired a whole bunch of warehouses, a whole exactly. bunch of distribution right. points. So yeah. is it an either-or or is it a both strategy? 
The, the answer is yes, and you've summarized it well. They've picked up 500 distribution centers that are not easy to build, not easy to figure out the real estate in areas that have access or proximity to the wealthiest house, households in the U.S. I think they could close the store down and use it as a warehouse and justify the purchase price. In well, addition, I mean, they basically didn't pay a purchase price, right? Cause the that's right, because the market, the market made every other grocer paid for it and took mm-hmm. Amazon stock price up the cost of the acquisition. So right. Amazon's now in a position where it can do Jedi mind tricks and kill other retailers or pay for things just by issuing a press release and not actually doing it. But So there's the distribution effect. Most people would say that Whole Foods is great, but it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, it's about to become less expensive. Mm-hmm. Amazon will overlay their operational excellence and their zero return hurdle rate. Mm-hmm. And Whole Foods is about to become the grocery equivalent of a Mercedes for the price of a Toyota. So in, Amazon is now going to be the fastest-growing online retailer and is about to become the fastest-growing offline retailer in the largest consumer sector in the world, or the largest consumer, retail consumer sector in the world, U.S. grocery, which is a $750 billion market and has stuck their chin out with what has been incredibly bad consumer offering. Absolutely. I mean, other I mean, than— it is striking to me when you go just, like, on a personal experience, like— so when you go into a Whole Foods and you go into any other grocery store, even though another like nice grocery store, not even like the crappy ones we have in yeah. New York, but like in the suburbs, the Whole Foods experience really is different. Like the lighting is better. The, like everything is just nicer and cleaner. It's nice. The people have some sort of profit sharing. Yeah. They seem like they're happy to be there. You have people who decide, make a conscious decision to go hang out there over lunchtime. Right. It's unique and it's different. And I think it was 2% of the U.S. grocery market. Whereas most grocery stores don't pass what I would call the 1985 test. Take me to a Sephora, put a blindfold on me, take me to the middle of the store, and then take the blindfold off. And how long do I have to spin around before I realize it's 1985? Right away, you take the blindfold off in a new Starbucks, Mm -hmm. and I go, okay, it's not 1985 anymore. Take me to the middle of a Kroger's or a Safeway and spin me around. Put me in the middle of the same brands, same bad lighting, same depressed workforce, it literally, you would have no, you'd think, oh, it's Kenny G and Frazier's playing. Right. I mean, it is just so back to the future. They have stuck their chin out and, and, and couldn't have happened to a better sector. So what I've been thinking a lot is what does it mean? Clearly, we know it's probably not good for all the other grocers. What does it mean for companies whose brands are on the shelves in Whole Foods and in other grocery stores? So I think it'll be fantastic for small independent brands that have very specific garlic-infused Mediterranean hummus, right, with great ingredients, farm-to-table, mm-hmm. breakthrough little brands. It'll be fantastic for those. And Amazon has been a great source of distribution and a great partner for those little, wonderful brands. For traditional CPG brands that have largely been dependent upon, again, the advertising industrial complex. So like the stuff that's sold by P&G, by Unilever. Kraft, by General Kraft. Mills, yeah. ConAgra, where they've, they're used to getting 40 60% margin for their brand equity, you know, choosy moms choose Jeff. Well, okay, is this really a great peanut butter? Because if it's not, I can find out what what Brooklyn peanuts are being grown in a farm in Long Island that I just saw that Beyonce likes on Instagram. These little brands are going to get new life. I believe that the big CPG brands should have made in a counter bid for Whole Foods, and I guess they still could. Um, it would be a no-lose situation for them. They need to get a, get just as Apple to greater control their distribution. No high-margin product, in my view, or very few, can maintain those aspirational margins with the decline of the advertising industrial complex mm-hmm. without Ford integrating into an area or a domain where brands are still built, so and that domain is retail. They need to consumer. They need to Ford integrate into retail. Yeah. So I was... 
I was urging a couple of them to pull together a consortium and do a counterbid. I saw it as a no-lose situation because if they got it, they got a great asset and could forward integrate into retail. If they didn't get it, they would make Amazon pay more. And I think these companies need to start kind of peeing on some fire hydrants or standing up a little bit to Amazon and saying, you know, you're clearly not a partner. I mean, Amazon partners with most big brands like a virus partners with a host. <laughs> it's just not it, – they're not – most people would not call them great partners. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think Whole Foods t- – is going to be to Amazon what Instagram was to Facebook. I think it's a genius acquisition, and it's going to. And I think they stole it. I, I mean, I'm obviously a big fan of it. Another sector where it's clearly hard to keep up with the changes that technology is wreaking is media, of course, right? Yeah. So we have you know magazines and newspapers are struggling. We have TV you know viewership, at least traditional TV viewership, as you said, is declining. You know, Facebook and Google have really taken over a lot of the audience. Yeah. What can media brands do to survive in that world? Well, there's a there's a fairly straightforward but effective survivability index you could put together that predicts who's going to be around and who isn't, and it's the ratio of subscription revenue to advertising revenue. Right. So, do you know what that ratio is at the FT, for example? What percentage of your revenues come from subscriptions versus advertising? More than half are subscriptions. Right, more than half. So, if you're over fifty percent, you're the New York Times, you're the FT, you're the Economist. Right. I think that says your content is so differentiated right. and you, you pass the ultimate test that people pull their wallet out and actually pay for it. Those brands survive. Those brands will find new channels. Those brands have equity. The ones that are totally advertising dependent, you know, some of the ABC properties, the Viacom properties, I think they're going to have a very, very difficult time. Why? Because the most attractive consumers are exiting the ecosystem of advertising. Right. I mean, I think Viacom is a particularly interesting case, right? Because here is the company. They own MTV. They own uh, Nickelodeon. I mean, they owned at one point when I was a kid, like they owned that younger generation, right? And then they just completely missed the shift to digital. Yeah. And more than that, I think they missed the shift to subscription-based advertising-free media. Right. So, you know, those companies, they're actually, I would argue they're not as dumb as people think from a digital standpoint. I think it's their business model. When you go to subscription-based, it forces you to have a more focused content offering that convinces people to pay for it. So who's like a good example of that in TV? HBO? Netflix. Netflix. Netflix, you know, 100 and what? hundred I mean, now one of the 10 most valuable companies in America, one of the best performing stocks. These stats are crazy. Millennials spend more time watching Netflix than the rest of broadcast TV combined. So arguably, Netflix should be worth more than every other TV channel and cable TV channel uh, combined. So it's very simple. Kids come to me and say, in my class, come and say, I want to go to work for a media. And I say, fine, just go to work for a company that's getting the majority of its revenues from subscription and recurring revenue as opposed to advertising. So then what does that mean, like, so stepping back, what does that mean for the advertising industry? I mean, if, if essentially they're, the way in which they built this entire, mm-hmm. these streams of revenue, these huge streams of revenue when you're talking about TV are collapsing in a lot of ways. Like, what does it mean if, yeah. if I'm trying to buy and sell advertising? It means they're screwed. I don't know. I'm not here with a message of hope. I think IPG, Publicy, WPP, who, and by the way, I have been wrong about this. I've been I've been predicting the collapse of the advertising industrial complex for five years. And I don't know if you saw the upfronts, but the upfronts were up. Right. But, you know, at the end of the day, the decline in viewership coupled with the increase in ad rates that are fat, that have outpaced inflation just makes you, in my opinion, literally just sticking your chin out. So, you know, Larry Sumner's had this great quote that it's surprising how long things can take and then shocking how fast they can happen. Right. I think the next economic leg down, we're going to enter the shocking phase where a lot of big advertisers are going to substantially cut their broadcast budget mm-hmm. and not miss it. 
Remember, I'm older than you, but when I came out of school, the coolest job you could get was with an ad agency. Mm -hmm. The most creative, interesting people you knew who wore a lot of black went and became creative directors of big ad agencies. Those people are about to decide to spend more time with their families. I mean, Don Draper has literally been drawn and quartered. As more money comes out of what you call broadcast, creatively driven advertising, right? Have Darth Vader start a Volkswagen. A kid puts on it. And that's supposed to make people want to go buy a Volkswagen. Right. Well, now the tools of diligence they have are so incredible to find the exact car they want or the exact hotel they want that they don't need to see an ad for a Marriott. They can go online and say, with TripAdvisor and Hotels Tonight, what is exactly the right hotel in Cincinnati given my price point, my demographic, my psychographic, and I no longer need to defer to the brand. The percentage of people that can identify their favorite brand in fashion, luxury, retail, and auto has declined by 30 to 50% across every category. What is your favorite brand? Whatever Google at that moment tells you is your favorite brand. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we're literally just starting to see the beginning of the end for uh, ad-supported media and ad-supported and brands that have largely used broadcast advertising to build their equity. So we've talked about, you know, we've mentioned Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google so far in this conversation. Yeah. They, I mean, they have really interesting relationships to each other, too, at this yeah. point, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're dominant in overlapping areas but um you, you, you've been making the argument recently that that amazon is actually now pulling ahead and and we've already seen it i mean they're kind of starting to move into the other territories right of these other companies so what happens yeah it's so when you talk about the four amazon apple facebook and google it's sort of talking going into a hall of you know the hall the football hall of fame which i've never been and saying who's the better quarterback is it john right. elway is a bart star and it's like they're all amazing and all these companies are amazing and they all seem to largely be staying away from each other's turf until about five years ago. Now they're encroaching on each other's turf and going after each other. And whenever I make the argument that potentially these companies, we should think about breaking these companies up, the counterargument, and it's a really good one, is that there's safety and hatred. And that is they hate each other, and now they're all going after each other's businesses, which right. is— Which, which keeps is, them in line and which helps— is, Yeah, good for us. Good for the consumer. Yeah. Good for all of us. Yeah. But if you look at the Venn diagram overlap, of where they are competing with each other when one of them is Amazon. Mm-hmm. I would argue in every space Amazon is, is bumping up against one of the other players, Amazon is winning. Mm-hmm. So where is Amazon bumping up against them? Uh, it bumps up against Google and Search. 44% of product searches in 2015 began on Amazon in 2015. In 2016, it was 55%. So Amazon is growing its search business a lot faster than Google is growing its search business. Right. In media, they compete against Facebook and Google. Amazon Media Group is growing 40 to 60% a year with the same operating margins, it looks like, of Facebook selling far down the funnel media on Amazon. In hardware, what's the most innovative hardware product of 2015 and 16? Was it the Apple Watch? Was it the Apple Pods? I would argue it was the Alexa. Right. The voice platform. So wherever you see streaming media, they compete with Apple, right? iTunes. Amazon was responsible for 2% of streaming media time in 2015, and they were number eight. In 2016, they're at 4%. They doubled their time, and they're number three. And they're going to spend $4.5 billion on content, more than ABC or NBC or HBO, only bested by Netflix at $6.5 billion, who, by the way, increased their content budget $2 billion when they heard Amazon's footsteps behind them. So every, every place we see the four bumping up against one another, when Amazon is one of them, and where that bump is, I would argue Amazon is winning. So the four may be soon become the one. I think Amazon appears to be just firing on all 12,000 cylinders across every business right now. 
if you're looking into your crystal ball, I mean, do they do something eventually? Do they buy somebody like Netflix? I mean, I mean, where do you see them making? They're obviously making this big move with Whole Foods, but where else could they make big moves? It seems like just this, the map is really open to them. Yeah, I think they have a lot of growth opportunities for their businesses. I mean, what they have is they have Prime, so they can start selling it pretty much whatever they want into right. the 60 million wealthiest households, not only in America, but probably in the world. And they have this ongoing recurring revenue relationship. What they did was they took the terrible business model of retail, where you had to convince people over and over to come back into stores and turned it into a recurring software-like mm-hmm. revenue model in Prime, which was genius, right? So they have, where do they have? I mean, right, well, I mean we're basically paying them for the privilege of shopping. With yeah, them. <laughs> we pay them so we can buy stuff from them. It's right. like, I don't know if you've been to the Soho house here, but you pay $2,500 a year to go buy drinks there. Right. Great business model. Right. So they have a ton of room to run. I mean, retail is a big business. They they only have, I don't know, 2 or 4% share of retail, so they have a lot of room to grow there. Uh, streaming media, they have a 4% share with Prime Video. They could go way up there. Mm-hmm. So even just – we haven't even begun to talk about the cloud, Shannon. Right. Fastest, <laughs> growing, fastest growing, most profitable business in yeah. tech. And who's number one? Oh, Amazon. Yeah. And then – And it was sort of like – I mean, they didn't even – that wasn't even an intentional business for them, right? That, let's initially. build our own capacity. Right. And then before you know it – and now they're adding more capacity every year than the capacity or the, sto- or the speed and storage they need when they launched the service 10 years ago. So – in the latest earnings call, everyone was trying to find something negative about it. And the most negative thing they could find about it was the growth of their cloud business had dropped to 41%. So this is a company that has – I've never seen a company execute so well and be so dominant in so many adjacents that don't seem to be related to each other. There was this guy, this academic. I think it was, it was either CJ or CK Prahala out of the University of Chicago who passed away recently. And he invented one of the core tenets of – business that came out of academia and the notion of core competence. Mm -hmm. And that is most companies that have a lot of shareholder value are really good at one thing and then do everything else kind of industry standard. Mm -hmm. And the four, and specifically Amazon and Apple, have blown that concept out of the water. What's Amazon's core competence? I mean, is it operations? Is it retail? Is it marketing? What's Apple's core competence? Marketing, design? I mean, all of these companies seem to have four or five core competencies. They're just so good. Where Amazon really has this moat that can't be overcome right now is access to cheap capital provided by a fanatical investor base. And that's why I think ultimately they will pull away from the rest and ultimately they'll be broken up. Where's their vulnerability? Quite frankly, I think the only thing that can stop Amazon in the short and medium term is the government or a regulator or an elected official whose testicles begin to descend because we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen anybody that wants to go after the four. Everybody wants to be seen as getting it. Right. Everybody wants the gross idolatry of innovators. We now worship at the altar of innovation as opposed to kindness or character. So Bezos, Sandberg, Bryn, Page, they're the, new, they're the new Jesus Christ and Mother Teresa and John Kennedys of our generation. And they get treated, they get to play by a different set of rules than the rest of businesses and the rest of business leaders. And I think people are starting to, but I've been saying this for a couple of years, starting to get fed up with it. Mm-hmm. And I think the worm is going to turn. But it doesn't seem like that likely in this administration. I mean, we're not going to see. This does not seem like the, the likely time for a cracked, a regulatory crackdown. Yeah, you're right. There, there were. I think there were three. They uh, we averaged 21 reviews, antitrust reviews, 20 years ago. Now we're at three. Mm-hmm. And what makes it harder actually is they're such global companies right. that to a certain extent America benefits from having these dominant Ayn Rand meets Darwin business players that are so good at what they do because even if they engage in tax avoidance destroy jobs you know america you could argue as a whole benefits disproportionately relative to other economies so you can see why 
you know, U.S. regulators and elected officials aren't in a hurry to go after these guys. I also think the easiest way to look 20 years older than you are is to call for a breakup of one of these guys or not worship them. Right. You just look you just look lame and old. I feel older talking about it <laughs> and not cool, right? You're supposed to worship these guys. Right. So we'll see. But I, th- I think an elected official is going to connect the dots between job destruction and these companies and get elected governor by going after them. What about something like Alibaba? I mean, are they – I mean – they owe a lot to Amazon in a way for like the way they've done yeah. their model, right? Is is the world big enough <laughs> in the long term for the both both of them to continue to do what they're doing and grow the way they're growing? So Hitler didn't want to invade Britain, and he basically tried to offer Churchill an agreement that said, "You will control Europe, and we'll let you control the empire." I think there's sort of almost a similar, and I'm not comparing anyone to Hitler here, so let me be clear. I'm just using a war analogy. I think there's a similar detente taking place between Alibaba and Amazon, where Amazon basically, Alibaba is saying, we're going to control China and, and we're going to compete in emerging markets, but it doesn't look like Alibaba is going to come into the U.S. And the word is that they see so much xenophobia around China with this administration that it's not worth the headache and the U.S. market is so competitive. So if, if Alibaba owns China, which is the fastest growing economy in the world and will probably be the largest economy in the world in 10 to 20 years, and America owns the U.S. and Western Europe, which are the wealthiest economies, and then they butt up against each other in places like India, so be it. They're both going to do really well. Right. It's a, it's a big globe. That's right. All right. So I want to go back to thinking about how you do brand building or how you create a brand or get customers, like get any attention uh, in this world where advertising is imploding and mm-hmm. you know, the entire way that you're selling your product is changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, you, you know, one of the things you, you mentioned was Instagram, right? And we mm-hmm. see this, you know, obviously this huge push into social media. We see lots of brands that have been essentially created via social media. Mm-hmm. Um, but social media can also take a brand down. Mm-hmm. So what is the most effective way now? If I want, have a new company, I have a new exciting company that I'm launching, like what mm-hmm. is my strategy? Like how, how do I think about even beginning to create this? I think it's what, what's old is new again. I think a better mousetrap. It used to be the algorithm for creating shareholder value post-World War II till I think the advent of Google was a marginal beer, a marginal shoe, a marginal sugary drink, and then wrap it in tight brand code, American, elegant, sexy, young, whatever it might be, and communicate this very tight brand code with fantastic creative across exceptionally efficient broadcast media channels. I believe that algorithm is dying. Right. And the new algorithm seems to be a better product, some sort of 10x better ingredients, organic, a better way to shop. Instagram is a better product. It's an amazing product. Right. These things, you know, Brooklinen for 99 bucks, I get fantastic sheets and a duvet. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a better value proposition. So a better mousetrap, and it not, it's not necessarily limited to the product itself. So Warby Parker came in and said for instead of 300 bucks. So I'm losing my vision, or my vision's getting worse. And I went in, and I bought a pair of Tom Ford glasses at one of these little cool hip shops, and I got the prescription, and they're like, do you want the anticoat? Do you want the anti-glare? Do you want the shaded? And by the time I walked out of there, it was 1100 bucks. and then within about three hours, I lost them. And then I go into Warby Parker, and they're about 80% as cool as Tom Ford glasses, and they're 99 bucks. Yeah. And right. then the online proposition of ordering five and sending back whatever you want the in-store experience, it's just a superior experience at a lower price because they're, they've figured out the supply chain. They don't need to advertise. I mean, it might raise their awareness. It might help them scale faster. I'm not saying they shouldn't experiment with print or subway. There isn't, there is a, a place for advertising. But people come to me and say, well, I want to build a brand. I'm like, no, build a better mousetrap and the brand will take care of itself. Whereas before it was find an okay product, 
wrap in an amazing brand and creative and then stuff the channel with it. I think mm-hmm. that's over. Mm-hmm. So true, great content breaks through. True, you know, the FT breaks through and it's a great brand, A, because of the, the salmon color, we're talking about that, but B, <laughs> the, you know, the writing is tight. They do a great job. And I think we're seeing that across these little brands and beauty, where the old brand that used to have this a lot of awareness and was a marginal product is getting eaten alive by these little these little companies that 10 years ago with a better product, it was like a tree falling in the forest. No one heard them without advertising. Right. Well, guess what? Now people hear them. Great products break through. Also, does that create a new kind of brand loyalty? I mean, if, if the idea of people can't name a favorite brand, I mean, does that come back around when it's about the product itself? Uh, so consumers are becoming more promiscuous and willing to, to shift brands. And what's interesting is at some point you might have an Uber brand or retailer, and I think it's going to be Amazon, that's going to begin arbitrating what brands you want and start mm. sending you the stuff you want before you know you want it. Right. I think the future of retail, I think this is kind of a scary place. But I mean, is that through AI? Is it through just through yeah, predictive? I think it's artificial yeah. intelligence. I think they look at your purchase patterns. Yeah. They use their fulfillment network. And they use the fact that 90 to 97% of our purchases are low-consideration, non-joyous Think about all the stuff you buy. Most of it is tedious. Like, low, like toilet paper and everything. paper towels and batteries. Food, and detergent, yeah. your shampoo, your deodorant, mm-hmm. even your sheets maybe. And then some stuff is fun. Buying right. a pair of Christian Louboutins is fun. Buying a Panerai watch is fun. That stuff you'll still do on your own. But I think we're headed to z- from one click to zero click where a trusted retailer or brand is going to start sending you two boxes. I think it'll be Amazon. One box will be full of the stuff they think you want, like using AI, your purchase history, and they'll send you a second empty box. And they'll say, Shannon, just send the stuff you don't want in box number one, back in box number two. And then calibrate using Amazon Alexa. What could be easier than saying, Alexa, barbecue for six people on Saturday night. Alexa, leaving town for two weeks. Stop sending me stuff. Alexa, send me six quotes for auto insurance for a Toyota Camry 2014 via email. It's going to get that easy. And Amazon's going to say, tell you what. And I don't know this, but this is what I would be doing if I were head of Amazon strategy. I'd be figuring out a college town we could run a test where we're going to populate and give them Amazon Alexa and say there's something called Prime Squared or Uber Prime. Mm -hmm. And anything we think we know what you want, and we're going to start fulfilling it automatically. And they're going to show that they're going to take Prime users from $1,300 a year to $7,000 a year, and the stock's going to become anti-gravity and go to a trillion dollars. And it's all over. And society begins to digress from there. <laughs> and then we're all just cats owned. living with dogs starts raining frogs. <laughs> Everything we know ends. Right. Well, then we just we live in a company town, which is America, owned by Amazon. Yeah, or brought to you by Amazon. But the box apart, like that does sound that does sound appealing. I mean, so I have a one year old. I now basically do all. Thank you. I basically do all of my shopping either at Whole Foods or at Amazon or via Amazon. Uh, so and so soon it will be all Amazon and. It's kind of ridiculous, actually, the amount of packages we get just in general. And there's plenty of things where it's like they should they, – they, and they do know because they start, they've started to you – know, the things that say, they suggest, right? Yeah. So I bought a few baby-proofing things, and now it's like, don't you want to also buy this? Don't you want to also buy the cabinet latches and whatever else? If a box showed up one day and they said, we think That's you right. might want these things. That's right. So you're – appealing. Uh, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions here. You have a job and you have a one-year-old, which means you're not sleeping a lot. And what Amazon's going to be able to say to you is we have an idea. We think we can give you 30 to 45 minutes more sleep a day or more free time. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to start sending you what we think you want. And you're going to trust that it's going to be a good price. And by the way, anything you don't want, put in this other box. And every day, that second box you send back or every week is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And pretty soon, other than the fun stuff, other than shopping for the right hotel when you go on vacation to St. Bart's or a gift for your mom that you want to be special – 
you know, that two, three, five percent of your purchases yeah. you'll shop for, but the rest they'll just send you. And there's only one company right now that I think has the infrastructure, the fulfillment, the cheap capital, the AI, and the trust for value to pull that off, and it's Amazon. Yeah. So I think your point about the about Alexa, you know, the, about the voice platform is really interesting. I mean, I think when I when I talk to people in advertising, sort of all the emerging technologies that people tend to get excited about, so you know, VR and AR, mm-hmm. voice seems to be the one that seems at least seems closest to actually making a real difference, right? In the way yeah. the way people shop and the way brands are are not built, or you know, the yeah. way the way the way products are are being sort of brought to our awareness. But it's it's really complicated, right? Because it's not. I mean, you've lost. It's not just losing the visual aspect. A lot of these cases. I mean, you are losing any kind of real brand identity. So the two worst things that happened in 2016 for brands were one, when Kraft Heinz tried to take over Unilever, mm-hmm. it sent a shutter through the system. Mm-hmm. And basically, the memo from kind of every board of every major CPG company is, we either need to cut costs. Or someone's going to come in and do it for us. Someone's going right. to take us over with this zero base budgeting that 3G right. and AB and Bev do right now, where they basically call everyone into a room and say, "All right, we don't understand why we have you. Make the argument." And then if you get through that gauntlet, they say, "Okay, we don't understand why you have a desk. We don't understand why right. we have janitors once a week. We don't understand why you have an assistant. We don't understand why we give you health care." And you have to make an argument for everything. And it's very effective on a cost basis because anything you can't make a good argument for, they cut. Right. All the innovation in CPG right now is around cost-cutting, unfortunately. Right. That's why we see P&G and Unilever both like, cutting what they're spending on advertising, anything that is at all fungible, right? They have to. And these are remarkably innovative companies. But if they don't cut their costs, someone's going to come in right. and do it for them. The worst thing that's happened to brands in the last three years has been Alexa. And first of all, you mentioned VR. I think VR is stupid. I think it's one of the biggest head fakes in technology. It's right up there with 3D printing. It's right up there with wearables. All it will never stuff. be more than just a, a just a. I don't know. It's at some point back. maybe I'll get heart surgery by a better doctor in India. I, I don't know who's who's got VR Google glasses. Mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg said VR was going to open new worlds. Right. No, it hasn't. It's 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 a failure. They just cut the price. It's already dead. AR. There might be some limited occupations or limited applications, but VR. It's sort of a let me pay a bunch of money to, so I can be nauseous. It's just it, 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 it's, there's absolutely no consumer value proposition there. And what technology consistently does is it overestimates how hard it is to convince someone to put something on their person. People th- spend a lot of time thinking about what I will put on my face. Right. This is always a problem with Google Glass, right? Everyone, you just look like. It wasn't a wearable. It was a prophylactic. Putting on a pair of Google Glass meant no one was going to get near you and you were never going to conceive a child. The only company, the only tech company that's ever figured out a way to put something on the person is Apple. And Apple has now positioned themselves as a luxury brand, and they, they sort of get it. So people say, all right, Scott, you're this grumpy pre- person. What technology do you like? I think voice is huge. And it just makes sense. It's an easier, cleaner way to command a technology uh, device. But look at all the things that aren't there with voice. When you think about where brands have spent tens of billions of dollars and decades mastering packaging, pricing. When I got out of UCLA, one of the best jobs was to get a job with Procter & Gamble. And your primary job was to go around and establish relationships with the owners of bodegas and small grocery stores and make sure the P&G products were eye level. Right. Right? And make sure that your signage and your end caps were clean. All, like all that things. in-store merchandising stuff is gone now, right? And, and that in-store marketing, shopper marketing, by some estimates, is a bigger business than broadcast advertising. 
And all of those levers, including price, go away. Mm -hmm. Price has been this tremendous lever for marketers. All right, we're not moving Budweiser. Cut the price. Run an end cap. Do a commercial or a cutout cardboard end cap with Tom Brady. Mm -hmm. These things are hugely effective. And by the way, call Target, P&G, and say, we want to do a promotion. we got to move a ton of Bud. And we had a, we had a partnership with them. And they said, okay, we make good money on beer. We'll figure something out. And then we had a Sunday circular, and we could do right. some all and these levers, clipping, all of these things. All right. these levers go away. And what you're going to see with voice, and we're seeing it every year, is the percentage of Google queries and the percentage of Alexa commands that include a brand as a prefix are declining. So it's order me Lagunitas IPA beer, then it's order me IPA beer, and then it's Alexa beer because Alexa and Amazon know what I want. Right. So the power, all these incredible levers are, again, dulling. And the, the brand or the arbiter of your brands is becoming Amazon. And the most elegant way for them to capture your trust, I think, is going to be voice. I think, I think Alexa is just a game changer. Do people really overcome the I – mean, am I just paranoid about the heavy idea of having something in my house listening to me? Typically, when someone's talking about privacy, it's someone over the age of 50 in Brussels or D.C. I don't hear a lot of kids in their 20s complaining about privacy. There's a direct correlation between – invasion of privacy and relevance mm -hmm. so everyone's had one of those creepy moments where you're in an Adele concert and you get served an ad for an Adele mm -hmm. album because mm -hmm. Facebook is listening and they say they're listening just to the ambient noise to serve you more relevant ads but it's not hard to get freaked out right. but I'm not I mean it'd be very easy to to not use Google it'd be you don't want your privacy violated just don't have a cell phone. Basically, what we've said, what we voted with our pocketbooks is as long as there's a coupon at the end of it or the advertising is more relevant or the offers are more relevant, violate my privacy. Just don't do anything as it relates to religion, sexual orientation, political views, anything like that, right? That stuff's sort of off limits. But when you think about the amount of information, I mean, think about how scary this is. Imagine your name, your face, and this could happen with all the hacking that's happened, above every search query you have made. I mean, we all put some crazy stuff into that box, right? right. Google knows your deepest, deepest fears. You, you confide in Google much more than your priest, your friend, your, your spouse. You, you know, there's no filter between your th the closest, The closest mirror of our true selves in terms of what we're thinking or what we're interested in goes into a Google box. It doesn't go to our journal. It doesn't go to our friends. And the, the notion that this company knows that stuff is really scary, yet none of us have decided, you know what, I'd, I'd rather Google not know this. I'm not going to type in. I'm not going to stalk my old boyfriend because I don't want them to know I'm still thinking about boyfriend. We don't think that way when it comes to Google. So these companies are given – we place a tremendous amount of trust and give them incredible license to violate our privacy. So, look, I, I think privacy concerns – is a perfect example of you know what they call marketing marketing dissonance, and that is people say one thing and then they behave another way. Mm -hmm. I see people when you look at you know, millennials how promiscuous they are with their own information on Instagram. Does it feel like they're worried about their privacy? No. So you shag where you are. You, you know, I mean, you everything can, you can find a lot contextually about people, right? Just by following them. Everything. So or a lot. So I, I think privacy as an issue. I don't want to say isn't important, but it seems to be overrated in terms of how consumers are actually behaving. All right. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I really appreciate you coming by. Um, you have a new book coming out. I Where do. Thanks for that, Shannon. It's October the 4th. It's called The Four. 
The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. All right, so we should all read it to find out uh, who's going to be controlling our future because it's definitely going to be one of them and probably Amazon. That's right. (laughs) All right, Scott Galloway, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that is the end of Shannon's chat with Scott Galloway. We hope you enjoyed it. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. You can find show notes to this and all other prior episodes at ft.com forward slash alphachat. Rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. It really does help others find out about us. And we see every single rating and every single review. We appreciate all of them, even... The very, very few bad ones. On Twitter, Shannon, where are you? At Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. And I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Shannon, do we know what Scott Galloway's Twitter handle is by any chance? He's at Prof Galloway. All right. And as always, our amazing producer and editor is Amy Keene. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. 